Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Last week, Auckland councillors voted in support of the Auckland Climate Action Plan, a bold commitment to reduce emissions by half by 2030. The plan puts into action Auckland City's declaration of a climate emergency last year, and it sets it on a bold path to zero emissions by 2050. So how will it get there? What's got to go and what's got to stay and what does it mean for business and citizens and all the rest of us? To explain what this means, I'm joined by Dr. David Hall of AUT, who was also the co-chair of the Independent Advisory Group, that's quite a mouthful, for the Auckland Climate Action Plan, and by Jenny Cooper, QC, who is the president of the Lawyers for Climate Action for New Zealand. So uh, welcome to both of you. Uh, maybe we could um, start with you, David. Uh, what is this thing? And well, maybe even before that, how long have you been working on this project? Um, it's the process has been going for about two years now, um, and it is really an attempt to to synthesise and and make a coherent action plan um, for aligning Auckland to the Paris Agreement targets of of trying to um, keep global warming um, at no more than one point five degrees. So. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it, it is really attempt to try and just gather all of the complexity of all the actions that need to happen in all the different spheres and sectors across Auckland and to try to make something coherent and, and functional and actionable. To what extent does it build on the previous commitments that I just talked about, the uh, commitment to, to zero emissions by 2050 and the climate emergency? Is it a something else again, or is it? Can, can we see these in a kind of logical progression? No, it is, it is consistent with those sorts of targets, um, net zero by 2050. So it is, um, it is striving to, to halve, halve Auckland's emissions by 2030, which is, gets us on track for that kind of, um, for that kind of trajectory. Just explain the 2030 target. It, that's not halfway to 2050 by my maths, which is never very good. <laughs> Why so ambitious a target? Um, we do need an ambitious target. Um, to, to to bend the curve basically and to because these you know having having a high emissions infrastructure and high emissions economy um it all has this momentum behind it and so the tricky thing is is bending that curve and getting things pointing downwards um and we need that level of ambition to to bend that curve and also to anticipate the sorts of changes that are going to be going on nationally and globally um, because you know that's the kinds of trajectories that are recommended by the IPCC and so um, changes of that nature will be going on around the world and to some extent Auckland has to adapt and to anticipate those changes um, as well so you know, if, if the rest of the world really takes this seriously and starts um, reducing 
production of fossil fuels, for instance, then then Auckland won't have access to the same amount of fossil fuels. So, so to some extent, you know, some of this will be taken out of Aucklanders' hands. And so and to some extent, it's anticipating those global and national changes as well and trying to align with them. So do you think that if we didn't have this sort of aggressive 2030 target, there would be a chance that we might end up behind the curve for instance a fleet of vehicles that are stuck with fossil fuels when fossil fuel may well become a i don't know a stranded assets as they call it exactly yeah auckland is it is at high risk of that uh we're so car dependent in auckland and if um you know covid has exposed the um vulnerability and fragility of the oil sectors in many regards. And so you can kind of expect volatility of price. And, you know, there's a lot of investors pulling out of fossil fuels at the moment, which may lead to increased um, petrol costs in the future. And that exactly that, that, that risks um, stranding a lot of the car assets that are around Auckland because people won't be afford, won't be able to afford to run them. And so, it is exactly, we need to anticipate these sorts of disruptions and um, bend that curve so that we're not exposed to these sorts of um, changes and transformations in the, in the energy system. We'll come to the detail of the plan in a minute, but Jenny, I just want to bring you in. Thanks for joining us. Um, does the plan surprise you? It, it came as a surprise to me only because I, I suppose I'm largely ignorant, but I didn't see a lot of media coverage for it. Have you been involved in, and uh, have you been participating in the development of the plan? Um, no, I haven't been directly involved uh, or participating. It wasn't a complete surprise to me just because I have been following a little bit some of the development of the plan. So I'd seen an earlier draft, I think, at some point. Um, and it's very much aligned with what I was hearing from various groups who've been lobbying and involved in these sorts of issues was necessary. So I'm really delighted to see the plan. I think it's fantastic. Um, and it says a lot of the things that it needs to say. Um, as David was saying, if, if we're going to get Auckland and the rest of the country on a trajectory to zero carbon by 2050 um, or even sooner than that, really, we need to make really substantial cuts by 2030 to stay on track with the Paris Agreement targets. And this is exactly what needs to happen. So I think it's a fantastic plan. And so in that sense, it's not a big surprise. Um, what is really um, exciting about it, though, is that it is actually um, one of the few documents I've seen that really recognises the scale of what needs to be done. Um, so that's terrific. It does seem ambitious, David. The uh, the council have supported it. What has to happen next in terms of getting public support and business support? Because the implications for the city are quite profound. So let's just talk about the politics of it for a minute. What happens next uh, after um, the, the celebrations? Of, I don't know if there was any champagne clinked, but it, it felt like a kind of a possibly even a Paris moment for the city. But what, yeah, tell us what happens next. 
Well, the big challenge is putting it into action. I mean, that's the great challenge um, at all levels, whether it's the international level or the national level or, or the city level. Um, these, these targets get made and, and plans get mooted. And then, um, you know, unfortunately, there's been a history of, of not putting that into practice. I mean, we, could, we only need to look back to the, the low carbon plan that um, – the previous mayor, Len Brown, um, signed off on, and you know that had targets of reducing emissions by forty percent by twenty forty, um, and nevertheless, <laughs> Auckland's emissions increased um, ever since ever since that plan was set. So, so obviously, there's a challenge there. Um, as for support, I mean, I mean, there is, I think, there is majority support among. Aucklanders. Um, there is support among businesses as well because, as you know very well, Vincent, you know, a lot of businesses are getting their heads around this and understanding the material risks of climate inaction, um, mm -hmm. both in the sense of leaving themselves vulnerable to climate impacts and also just, just being a laggard in, in the way that the um, economy is shifting towards a, a low emissions um, economy. So, so I think the support is there, but again, it's this, it's this problem of, um, it's this problem of turning that support and that goodwill into into action, and and you know making the decisions that need to be made. Um, you know, m maybe it's a, a weakness of will in some in some regards. The will is there, but the um, the the capacity to turn it into action isn't there and you know in other contexts it's really that difficulty of shifting from one incumbent system to another um, novel system uh, when that when that new system hasn't yet been put into place so yeah. there's lots of little hurdles here which are going to make it difficult and I think the um, the key thing really is is given the complexity of the of the action plan and, and how many areas it covers and so on. From a, from a council perspective, the great challenge I think is going to be um, having a sense of coordination amongst itself as an institution, because, you know, council is, you know, a sprawling institution and this is a sprawling plan um, yeah. by necessity and, and how to, how to make sure that the right parts of council take seriously the parts of the plan which apply to them and put that into action and having some coordinating capacity uh, within council. But it, and, and then I just would finally add, it's not just council, it's also how do we get that level of coordination and action across the city um, uh, in business amongst um, Aucklanders and, and, all, and iwi, hapu and all other um, partners and stakeholders. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so let's have a look at the some of the detail of the plan, Jenny. It seems to me that the, there's two broad uh, elements to this. There's the planning for mitigation or mitigating for climate change, uh, and then there's actions to reduce emissions. Let's just talk about the actions to reduce emissions. What are the main levers that the council can pull to um, to make sure that they are I mean, we're we're talking really nine years now to halve emissions. It's what what is there low hanging fruit that the council could attack first that would deliver a, a big gain? 
Well, I don't know if you could really describe it as low-hanging fruit because I don't think any of it is all that easy. Um, but the, neither, the big... neither low nor fruity. <laughs> no. Um, but look, the biggest and most obvious area to tackle is private transport and vehicle emissions. So that makes up such a huge proportion of our emissions. And that's something that we actually have control over. And taking out those emissions doesn't mean they move somewhere else. We're actually reducing overall global emissions uh -huh. if we re if we reduce those so so that's the obvious place i think to focus on and it's where indeed the council in this plan um they are directing a lot of their focus mm -hmm. um what does that so, actually mean in practice i mean that yeah. that sounds like a uh, as a a bold uh, and confident auckland driver uh it sounds like um my behaviors are going to have to change well they are i'm afraid vincent what? yes um <laughs> But look, Nobody asked me. And this is this is what I love about this plan. It's not shying away from the fact that to achieve the um, our environment uh, our environmental goals and our emissions reductions goals, we're going to have to have massive system change. And mm. transport is probably the most obvious example of that. And where you know every Aucklander is going to be most affected. But you know we have to have the vision for that, and then we have to um, essentially well, both operationalize it, but also sell it to people. And we've all had the experience during the lockdown of less traffic on the roads and um, much more walking and cycling. And, um, you know, it sounds a bit like I'm you know, in my little uh, bubble, but, um, you know, there's a lot of benefits to that. So we have to sell the benefits to people. So, so to reduce transport emissions, obviously what we need to do is we need mode shift. We need people to get into more public transport. We need people to be... Um, walking and cycling, um, and we need huge uptake of electric and low emissions yeah. vehicles. Right. I mean, that, that's the only way we're going to be able to do this. Um, so it's great to see this plan really acknowledging that and, and being upfront about it. That requires quite a big infrastructure investment, doesn't it? Because the uh, you know the cycleways that we've created are modest. Um, anyone that cycles around Auckland just knows how frightening the experience is and even the the new cycleways are pretty narrow and and modest so just for instance cycleways are, are one area that there's going to have to be much more investment in uh you know building new infrastructure uh is that likely to happen given the covid situation and given the crisis the financial crisis the the council is facing well yeah I, i'll jump in and answer that so so on two levels um on current planning, no, it's not because we've seen the emergency budget um, take funding away from from some new um, new proposals. Mm. Uh, I was at the Auckland Transport Board meeting earlier this week where they were discussing their statement of intent, and at the moment, their statement of intent says they're not going to um, implement any new cycleways other than those already underway. So, um, so at the moment, no, that's not happening. Can it happen despite the um, fiscal constraints that we're under post-COVID, yes, it can, because actually uh, building cycleways is um, far cheaper than a lot of other interventions. So um, I would say that actually it's a relatively low cost. And so when mm -hmm. you talk about low-hanging fruit, I think improving cycling infrastructure and walking infrastructure um, is actually probably the closest we get to that. Uh, David, from your point of view, the, the changes to the transport network, uh, we've just talked about um, 
cycleways and and public transport and and so on. One of the big systematic changes that has to happen is a shift to an EV fleet. What mm. has to happen for EVs to become a logical and and an easy choice for Aucklanders to make? Well. Um this is a tricky area, especially from a council perspective, because there's not necessarily so much that council can do in this regard, except to, um, you know, encourage in some regards indirectly um, through, you know, v- various incentives um, such as, you know, parking options and, and, and so on. But, uh, but a lot of, a lot of that kind of shift um, may sit elsewhere, um, you know, uh, at, the, at the national level, the government has been exploring um, vehicle emission standards and fee baits, um, neither of which, uh, both of which, have stalled in the um, in, in in government and sort of haven't haven't advanced in the policy process under this term. Um, uh, but but some of the some of that transformative change might might sit there, and so council's role might well be one more of of advocacy. I mean, it, it has greater control over things like public transport, and I think electric buses is an obvious. Um, I actually think of that as a low hanging fruit as well. I mean, there was a discussion about this in the Environment and Climate Change Committee, where the plan was was passed unanimously. Um, but 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 some of the councillors did worry about the cost of um, electric buses um, mm-hmm. because at the upfront level they are so expensive. But you know it was pointed out by um, officials, council officials, that over the life cycle analysis they are much much cheaper because um, they're relying on cheaper electricity and there's also lower depreciation. They don't need as many replacements of parts and so on. So yeah, so sure. that's. Council can influence uh, much more strongly. The, the EV question is is a little more challenging um, for a council. I see also in the plan. Uh, well, there's a commitment to start purchasing electric buses from 2025, which that's four years away. Why isn't that sooner? Well, I mean, th- this this makes me put my climate finance hat on and say that we could do it. <laughs> we could do it tomorrow if we really wanted to. I mean. It's just a matter of raising the cash, and there should be um, there are investors who would be willing to put their money into into this kind of arrangement, especially because the um, economics stack up so well on the um, over the life cycle, and that there's you know obvious cost savings which could be monetized, especially in the form of a bond. So. Uh, mm-hmm. um, so, so I, I think it's just a matter of um, packaging packaging that up in a way which makes sense to um, CFOs and other people who need to sign off on the financials of this sort of thing. The other levers that are, or the other items in the plan that uh, can, well, listed as delivering this uh, planting trees, 1.5 million trees over the next three years. Uh, David, I know that you're a forestry man. Where are those trees going to be planted and, and what kind of trees are they? Um, so the the key focus for urban um, forest is... is um, is under the urban Nahiri strategy, um, and and that identified uh, through the kind of lidar analysis of, of Auckland's canopy cover that um, some parts of Auckland has far less 
vegetation and trees than than other parts. So so the focus really um, for council is to start to get more trees planted in those places that have right, less um, there, there's a very broad pattern that in the south of Auckland and in the east because these were areas that, that were once orchards and so were cleared of um, forest and have since had buildings put on them but not mm-hmm. um, other kinds of trees. So, um, and, and so these, you know, these areas, um, they miss out on the benefits of, of having urban trees around them which I think I think during lockdown those those benefits became more apparent to anyone you know having having trees around you is is a sort of a, a source of solace for people um, during a during a difficult time and and there's also all sorts of um, you know material benefits from having urban trees in regards to um, you know stormwater control and mm-hmm. uh, quality and so on um, but I but I would add that that um, you know what became very apparent at that committee meeting because of the trees, the mature trees being cut down in um, Avondale. That you, you know that the, a lot of the meeting, um, or a portion of the meeting at least, was discussing those benefits of having mature trees. So, um, because the the benefits of them are multiplied when they're when they're large and and mature, and so losing uh, mature trees is is a is a major problem in this regard. And so it's not just about um, getting new trees in the ground. It's also about protecting those large trees, which, which have survived the, thus far. It really highlights the, the difficulty of these two uh, imperatives. On the one hand, we want to retain trees. On the other hand, we want to build houses. I know that section, actually, I drive past there to drop my daughter at saxophone lessons every day, uh, every week. Um, it is a beautiful stand of trees, but it's in a, an area where there should be intensification of housing. Um, you know, these are these are interesting conflicts, Jenny. And I noticed that the uh, one of the items in this action plan is reviewing the Auckland Unitary Plan. Um, do you have any thoughts about how we balance the need for climate action, but also the need to intensify and continue to build at pace housing for Aucklanders? Well, yeah, that's the that's the challenge, I guess. Yeah, if you um, could just fix that, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what I think that issue does highlight is something that, that I personally think this plan deals with really well, uh, which is the fact that it's so, all these issues are very multifaceted and they, they, they involve balancing lots of different factors and they involve lots of stakeholders. Mm. Um, so when you're talking about development, um, this plan has to work alongside uh, the unitary plan, um, the Resource Management Act, the building code. Um, mm. There's a whole lot of things going on uh, which all contribute to the type of development that we get. And some of those things at the moment aren't really helping us to deliver the objectives that we want. So, um, well, you know, so there's a recent example, of course, is there's um, just been a change um, in relation to the permitted height of buildings. So obviously if we allow... Uh, taller buildings to be built that allows greater intensification on a smaller area which all things being equal you would hope would leave more room for the trees so mm. maybe the, the particular part of land in Avondale that has those trees on maybe that gets left as it is and the next door section 
gets a taller building on it, you know. So th those are the kind of trade-offs that we need the right planning laws to enable those to be made. Um, and it's not simple because that's not really the way, it's not, you know, these laws have a lot, they take a long time to develop, they have a long legacy, it's, it's not easy to change them. Um, and, the, and there are multiple aspects to them. So um, it's difficult to get all those things working. But, but as I say, what I like about the plan is it recognises um, that there's a lot of different areas um, feeding into these issues and it acknowledges the need to work with different stakeholders and in different sort of frameworks. So I, I think it's really positive. Right. In the uh, list of um, objectives, David, is retrofitting to uh, reduce emissions, improve health of Aucklanders and create green jobs. That sounds fantastic. What What on earth is it? The retrofitting of houses is, um, is, is just making sure that they've got proper insulation, um, you know, energy efficient heating and so on, and just ensuring that... Um, ensuring that they deliver on that promise of having warm, dry homes for Aucklanders. Um, and, and that, of course, has all sorts of health benefits. Um, so this is a great example of where uh, climate action and, and sort of social action um, uh, intersect and overlap and complement one another. Um, and, and it even also complements you know, our pandemic response, um, COVID-19 being a respiratory disorder. So if people are in um, worse circumstances in that regard, then they are more susceptible to, to uh, fatalities and serious cases of such a virus if that was ever to take hold in New Zealand, which touch wood. And thankfully, we, we, did, we have averted so, so far Um so, so yeah, the, I, and, and this goes to your point around the, um, the uh, budgetary constraints of, of council, um, you, you know, the, the sort of debt instrument I described earlier is constrained by the debt ceiling and then the um, you know, council's income is reduced as a result of, um, as a flow on effect from, from lockdown. So it becomes incredible becomes incredibly important to identify those areas where climate action is delivering other goods and that you are tying together a number of council objectives into the one intervention and solving um, solutions, not just in the climate action plan, but also um, challenges that have been identified in other plans. Mm. I mean, the, the question of finance is very interesting. As I understand it, and Jenny, I'm sure you know this better than me, uh, the constraints that municipal authorities have on raising debt or financing and interesting private-public partnerships is, is quite constrained uh, by their statutory rules around them. Do you think in tandem with this ambition, we need to be more innovative in the way we finance initiatives at a local level? Definitely. I mean, I think... You know, if you look at the um, the central government response to a crisis like COVID-19 is to change the rules on debt and say, look, this is an emergency. We need to do this. This is in yeah. everybody's interest. And everybody has essentially got on board with that. And there's a very high level of consensus. So that's the right way to go. If we apply the same thinking to climate change, um, I think it's easy to make the case for uh, a big push on spending 
both at local level and um, central government level, because we're much better off leaving our kids, um, you know, a bit of a debt, financial debt hangover to deal with than a carbon debt hangover to deal mm -hmm. with. You know, it, it, it's and as David's saying, things like um, electric buses, it's it, the, the economic case for borrowing the money to buy those buses now is compelling. So I absolutely think that councils should be pushing harder um, to free up those rules. But I have to admit, this is not my area of expertise. David probably knows a lot more about it than me. So. <laughs> well, well, I was just going to add, it's not just the in regards to finance that councils are constrained, but also what they're able to do under the Resource Management Act. And I mean, that's one of the major problems with the urban trees is that, you know, default protections for uh, trees were removed by amendments um, to the RMA um, made by the last government. Um, so so councils are, are constrained in regards to, to what protection they can ensure for trees mm -hmm. that are on private property. Um, but then on the flip side, um, you know, councils haven't been empowered to make resource consent decisions with climate mitigation factors in mind as well when the RMA was originally um, implemented it, it did enable that but that was um, removed by the um, Clark government and so since then um, councils haven't been made, able to make um, generally decisions on climate mitigation grounds however there is a resource management amendment bill at, and in, in process at the moment, which will bring back that power. So, so councils are, are you know, soon likely to be able to make those um, resource consent decisions, factoring in the climate mitigation implications of of development activities. Mm, interesting. I, I which will, sorry, Jenny, you go. Oh, I was just going to say, I think I think those amendments have actually passed, but they don't come into effect until um, next year. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we're sort of yeah, in that but long, zone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but long overdue change. So, you yeah. know, thank heavens that was a that was an important thing that needed to change and has. Oh well, from twenty twenty one. To what extent is Auckland uh, pioneering this? Are there other uh, councils around New Zealand, David, that are already signing up to plans like this? There, there are various initiatives underway. I, um, I have been in conversations with um, with Wellington and Greater Wellington Regional Council. They certainly um, have, have some quite structured thinking around this. Um, but, but I, ca I can't speak for can't speak for everybody, it, all, all the councils. But I mean, I, I, I think you know, you know, there's just as a general awareness of this, and, and different councils are looking at it in different ways. I wonder if we could just put halving emissions in context, and perhaps even I don't know if either of you have thought about what it means for you as a family or as individuals. But uh, let's just talk about the measure of it, uh, David. How, how is it measured? Is it measured just by council's activity or is it measured across the whole city and all the citizens and all the activity within a uh, I don't know within a geographic boundary can you just give us a, a sense of what half means what half means in, in the in sorry I'm not quite grasping your question are, are well, you how, how do we know how do we know when we've halved our emissions <laughs> do we know what they are 
So, so for the for the plan, the councils used used a particular tool, a particular modelling tool um, called Curb, um, and and I can't speak to the details of that um, because you know in my role on the advisory group, I really had more of a helicopter perspective over over the general structure of it. Um, uh, and this is just indicative of the complexities of climate change that there's all of these different moving parts <laughs> which 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 you can't keep on top of all of them um, so so I can't speak to the curb tool and and, and, and that modeling um, in particular how about you Jenny do, do you have a sense of how, how it's being measured and how do we know when we've got there well no again the measuring side is definitely not my area of expertise <laughs> Um, but I do know that, I, I, I mean, the way it's being measured, I think, is intended to capture the whole of Auckland. It's not just Auckland Council's sort of specific um, areas of responsibility. Um, it is looking at household emissions as well, is my understanding. Mm. Mm. Um, and as far as I know, I think, you know, the, the ways by which these things are measured are fairly robust. I mean, I, I suppose you can um, you can draw conclusions if you look at, you know, energy usage, you can make calculations about what that translates to in terms of emissions um mm. and how do we know when we got there well I, I guess yeah by looking at the um at the results of those measurements in uh in you know a few years time and, and one of the things actually another thing i do like about the plan is the implementation um does set out a whole list of measurables mm. which is again really good and they look like sensible things to be measuring like um vehicle kilometers traveled by different types of transport um petrol and diesel sales, um, electricity use, all that kind of thing. So okay, I think great. it does look fairly robust in terms of measurement. Excellent. All right, well, let's just finish by, I'm going to put you on the spot because um, we're all in this together, right? So if you think about your own household and your own behaviour as Aucklanders, what, what does it take for us as individuals to, to halve our emissions at a really personal level? And maybe you could do it by 2025. David, do you have, have you thought about that at a at an at a David Hall and the Hall Inc. level. Um, I mean, I mean, my answer to this is always just that everybody has their own role to play and their own contribution to make, to make, depending on where they are and what their roles and responsibilities are. You can't expect, um, you, you know, some people have have leadership roles and they're you know making investment decisions which will have implications for decades ahead and they have different sorts of responsibilities to to someone who is you know working a nine-to-five job and and um trying to wrestle with um auckland's transport system <laughs> to get to work from a from an outer suburb you know mm. so so I, th I think these these choices are all quite individualized and we um and we need to you know, recognise that and 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 find ways to to act which um, fit with where we sit in within Auckland. You're sounding uh, you're sounding loose, David. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not making you, you want me to speak personally? Yeah, I do. Well, you're on the committee. We're all, all going to be held to account at some. <laughs> Point. How about you, Jenny? Oh, you can think about it, David. While Jenny, I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I catch the bus to work, and and so you know those those buses are diesel buses. So so the more I um, lobby and come up with solutions to turn those buses into electric buses as soon as possible, then um, then you know that'll take a big chunk of my uh, weekly emissions out. So yeah, if you absolutely. want a real concrete example, there you go. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. How about you, Jenny? Yeah. Well, look, I, I totally agree with David. I think um, we get we get into sort of um, carbon shaming people. That's a really bad way to go. But but having said it, I do feel uh, I need to put my money where my mouth is. And so yeah, we have been thinking quite hard about it. The biggest thing we've done is buy an electric car, and we're obviously very fortunate to be in a position where we're able to do that. Um, so that's been fantastic and probably the biggest thing uh, that's changed our emissions. Um, so my partner drives that to work and I take the ferry. Um, the kids ride their bikes to school mainly or take the bus. Fantastic. Um, so just on an individual level, it's kind of, but I can see the challenges of this because when they talk about retrofitting houses, you know, we have gas, hot water, and even our house is not fully insulated, which is terrible. And, um, and we have a gas oven and I'd love to get rid of them, but actually it's, it is quite expensive doing that stuff. And I will, but you know, it's, you know, I'm at the, you know, I'm in a very privileged position where I understand what I need to change and I have the resources to do it, but it's, it's still difficult for me. So um, I don't, I don't underestimate yeah. the challenge. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we had, had a similar situation at a really personal <laughs> level. We put, we put gas heating in our house and the reason for it is because <clears throat> our vector told us we didn't have enough capacity on our line to be able to, to support Oh. sufficient uh you know electricity to power all those heat pumps so you know it's, you see that at a microcosm at a macro macro level it, it's hard isn't it david and we you know we could I, I really like jenny's point about carbon shaming you know that we 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 have to be able to make this transition in a just way i guess that's mm -hmm. why they call it a just transition we Never do and um and equity was was really built into this um plan that was a that was a major consideration for the plan and something that councillors are highly attuned to because the, it's it's their um you, you know they're representing those communities which are facing the um facing the impacts of climate action in a different way and i just want to just before we um wrap up as well that you, you know this is just a a point as well that the the, at the committee meeting, the, the representatives from the um, Mana Whenua Kaitiaki Forum uh, were also present there, and they mentioned that this plan was unprecedented. That was the word that Johnny Freeland used in regards to the engagement with Mana Whenua for, as, a, as an effort for council to, um, to undertake a plan in a, in a kind of co-governance model. Um, mm. So... so you know, the Mana Whenua Kaitiaki Forum was, was heavily involved from the start and came up with their own framework, which, which sort of overlaid and, um, and kind of provided a holistic context for the whole plan um, as, as a whole and, and especially teased out the, um, the aspect of, of well-being um, and the Modi of, of people and Mana Whenua and, and other people who live in Tamaki Makoto. So, um, you, know, you know, council did a great job in this particular plan to um, to to reach out and to and to fulfil its partnership responsibilities, and that was acknowledged and recognised by Mana Whenua. So, you know, hats off to the the council team in that regard. They've um, you know they've pulled together a lot of really complicated planning and policy issues, and you know, engagement with the public and business stakeholders and Mana mm. Whenua and also Rangatahi, the Māori youth leaders, and managed to turn all of that complexity into a, into a coherent plan. Oh, that's, well, that's great to hear. Well, what a great place to wind up. Uh, I look forward to seeing the plan in action and um, all the best for uh, those on the council and implementing it mm. and us 
as citizens. So uh, Jenny Cooper and David Hall, thanks for joining us today on this climate business. And uh, we'll see you again, no doubt, very soon. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the program. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.